Then for her own sense of self, and for the education of the ill-informed, she must insist with rectitude in being the thing, and in being called the thing. A rose by any other name may smell as sweet, but a woman called by a devaluing name will only be weakened by the misnomer. She will need to prize her tenderness and be able to display it at appropriate times in order to prevent toughness from gaining total authority and to avoid becoming a mirror image of those men who value power above life and control over love. It is imperative that a woman keeps her sense of humor intact and at the ready. She must see, even if only in secret, that she is the funniest, looniest woman in her world, which she should also see as being the most absurd world of all times. It has been said that laughter is therapeutic and amiability lengthens the lifespan. Women should be tough, tender, laugh as much as possible, and live long lives. The struggle for equality continues unabated, and the woman warrior who is armed with wit and courage will be among the first to celebrate victory. Passports to Understanding Human beings are more alike than unalike, and what is true anywhere is true everywhere. Yet, I encourage travel to as many destinations as possible for the sake of education as well as pleasure. It is necessary, especially for Americans, to see other lands and experience other cultures. The American, living in this vast country and able to traverse 3,000 miles east to west using the same language, needs to hear languages as they collide in Europe, Africa, and Asia. A tourist browsing in a parish shop, eating in an Italian ristorante, or idling along a Hong Kong street, will encounter three or four languages as she negotiates the buying of a blouse, the paying of a check, or the choosing of a trinket. I do not mean to suggest that simply overhearing a foreign tongue adds to one's understanding of that language. I do know, however, that being exposed to the existence of other languages increases the perception that the world is populated by people who not only speak differently from oneself, but whose cultures and philosophies are other than one's own. Perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that all peoples cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die, it can introduce the idea that if we try to understand each other, we may even become friends. The Sweetness of Charity The New Testament informs the reader that it is more blessed to give than to receive. I have found that among other of its benefits, giving liberates the soul of the giver. The size and substance of the gift should be important to the recipient, but not to the donor, save that the best thing one can give is that which is appreciated.
The giver is as enriched as is the recipient, and more important, that intangible but very real psychic force of good in the world is increased. When we cast our bread upon the waters, we can presume that someone downstream, whose face we will never know, will benefit from our action, as we, who are downstream from another, will profit from that grantor's gift. Since time is the one immaterial object which we cannot influence, neither speed up nor slow down, add to nor diminish, it is an imponderably valuable gift. Each of us has a few minutes a day or a few hours a week which we could donate to an old folks' home or a children's hospital ward. The elderly whose pillows we plump or whose water pitchers we refill may or may not thank us for our gift, but the gift is upholding the foundation of the universe. The children to whom we read simple stories may or may not show gratitude, but each boon we give strengthens the pillars of the world. While our gifts and the recipients should be considered, once decided upon, our bounty should be given without concern, overflowing one minute and forgotten the next. Recently, I was asked to speak before a group of philanthropists and was astonished at their self-consciousness. The gathered donors give tens of millions of dollars annually to medical research, educational development, art support, and social reform. Yet, to a person, they seemed a little, just a little, ashamed of themselves. I pondered their behavior and realized that someone had told someone that not only was it degrading to accept charity, but it was equally debasing to give it. And sad to say, someone had believed that statement. Hence, many preferred to have it known that they dispense philanthropy rather than charity. I like charitable people and like to think of myself as charitable, as being of a generous heart and a giving nature, of being a friend indeed to anyone in need. Why, I pondered, did the benefactors not feel as I? Some benefactors may desire distance from the recipients of their largesse because there is a separation between themselves and the resources they distribute as inheritors or managers of fortune rather than direct earners, perhaps they feel exiled from their gifts. Then it follows that they feel exiled from the recipient. It is sad when people who give to the needy feel estranged from the objects of their generosity. They can take little, if any, relish from their acts of charity. Therefore, are generous out of duty rather than delight. If we change the way we think of charity, our personal lives will be richer and the larger world will be improved. When we give cheerfully and accept gratefully, everyone is blessed. Charity is kind, envieth not, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed New Directions
1903, the late Mrs. Annie Johnson of Arkansas found herself with two toddling sons, very little money, a slight ability to read, and to add simple numbers. To this picture, add a disastrous marriage and the burdensome fact that Mrs. Johnson was a Negro. When she told her husband, Mr. William Johnson, of her dissatisfaction with their marriage, he conceded that he too found it to be less than he had expected and had been secretly hoping to leave and study religion. He added that he thought God was calling him not only to preach, but to do so in Enid, Oklahoma. He did not tell her that he knew a minister in Enid with whom he could study and who had a friendly unmarried daughter. They parted amicably, Annie keeping the one-room house and William taking most of the cash to carry himself to Oklahoma. Annie, over six foot tall and big-boned, decided that she would not go to work as a domestic and leave her precious babies to anyone else's care. There was no possibility of being hired at the town's cotton gin or lumber mill, but maybe there was a way to make the two factories work for her. In her words, she said, I looked up the road I was going and back the way I come, and since I wasn't satisfied, I decided to step off the road and cut me a new path, unquote. She told herself that she wasn't a fancy cook, but that she could mix groceries well enough to scare hungry away from a starving man. Unquote. She made her plans meticulously and in secret. One early evening, to see if she was ready, she placed stones in two five-gallon pails and carried them three miles to the cotton.